This is the Skirted Roundtable. I'm Linda Merrill from Surroundings. And this is Megan Arquette from Beach Bungalow 8. And this is Joni Webb from Coast of Texas. And this week on the Skirted Roundtable, we are welcoming Caroline Rome, fashion designer, interior designer, flower uh, grower, a <laughs> beautiful flowers gardener, and photographer. So Caroline, thank you so much for joining us at the Skirted Roundtable. We always ask of our guests to tell us about your background, um, how you grew up in the business, and um, uh, how you came to be the person you are today. So if you want to share, that would be great. I started to giggle because I know how I became the person I am today. <laughs> you mean this totally obsessive, compulsive, neurotic human being? Sure. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think I am that at all. But anyway, I just... Um, first of all, I grew up in Missouri. And from day one, I was one of those artsy-craftsy kids. I wasn't a tomboy. I ran around in high heels at the age of three, my mother's, and played dress-up. And I played florist and I played restaurant. That was my that was my my sole activities growing up, and then finally one day I discovered that actually someone did dresses for a living. I think I was watching Backstreet with Susan Hayward. Now that's not a very happy ending because she dies, I think, or the boyfriend dies. But anyway, I decided at the age of ten that I was going to be a fashion designer, and set my sights on that and kept them there until I graduated from Washington University in St. Louis, and then moved to uh, New York City right out of college. What did you major in? I was a, have a Bachelor of Fine Arts, a Fine Arts degree, but I um, specialized in, in, in fashion. But my parents didn't want me to go to a classic trade school. It, it, what it really meant is they didn't want me to go to New York City to a Parsons or an FIT because I'm an only child and the idea of their only duckling going off to New York City at the age of 18 I think was too frightening for them. So I went to Washington U in St. Louis. And then graduated and and went to to work on Seventh Avenue. And you were working as were you you, you were like a, a in house model. Is that what is that? What it started at is I was always a designer, but unfortunately, when you are a young design assistant, I brought home one hundred and twenty six dollars a week. <laughs> so you can imagine how hard. Where did it was. you live? Did you live in with? Uh, three other girls in, up in the Upper East Side in a dive of an apartment. And, you know, when you split the rent between four, then it's not so bad. But and also this was 1973, so we're just talking about a, a century ago practically. And so um, the reason I did the little bit of extra modeling was because, well, two reasons. One, I needed to make a little extra money. And at that time, you know, you didn't have this um, mix between print models and runway models. And basically, uh, there was a big split between there were two different, they were paid differently and everything. And so I started doing some little extra runway when I was working for Oscar De La Renta as his design assistant. And then he had a house model that I thought was such a frump. She killed every dress. And you know, being a young fashion student and having model clothes both in St. Louis and doing it around town, I um, said one day after she'd left, I want to put that dress on because there's nothing wrong with that dress. And it's all about attitude and how you present the dress. And sure enough, Oscar said, you're right. And so then I started doing a lot of the fittings because I made the clothes look better than she did. But excuse me. Back yes. up a little bit. How do you get a job first out with Oscar De La Renta? Okay. <laughs> you make it sound so easy. Oh, like I was working for Oscar and, you know, but I mean, and, how you did know, you get the job? It's one of those things. It's, 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 I told you this could be a long-winded story. If you want me to 
tell you yes. Yes. Really, I was I, I was offered three jobs as a as a as a college student, just like you know people go to Yale or to Harvard or Columbia to recruit young uh, business people or young lawyer potential young lawyers. They also do it in the fashion uh, segment of the world. Now, of course, the type of job offers you get living in St. Louis, Missouri, are very different from the ones you get in in New York City. If you're whose house? Jody, yes, is that you? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Where okay. uh, must be in an airport. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know what that was. Okay, go on. So anyway, I was offered three jobs. I, I don't know if you ever remember hearing, because I don't know your ages, you all look young in your pictures, but, you know, I put a picture that's 10 years old online, <laughs> things, so God knows. I figure if Aileen Maley can do it, I can do it too. I mean, hers is about 50 years <laughs> ago, but anyway, I was offered this job by a man named Victor Costa, and Victor Costa yeah, worked yeah. for, and he's from Texas, actually, and yeah, he right. called Susie Perrette on 7th Avenue. Well, he offers me this job as a student. I come to New York, I show up for work, and they have absolutely no idea who I am. They look at me and say, well, uh, we don't know anything about an, uh, a design assistant for Mr. Costa. And I guess the lady thought I looked dumbstruck. So she said, well, go in and sit down and we'll try and figure it out. And he's not here. He's on a, he's on a business trip. So anyway, I sat there and waiting and waiting for hours. Finally, someone said, well, you might as well do something. So they actually had me start entering orders. So, you know, if, if Saks Fifth Avenue wanted, you know, dress uh, number, you know, 6543 in a size 6 and an 8 and a 14, I was entering that information. Not exactly how I just, you know, wanted to start my design career. So anyway, at the end of the day, I was told to go in and see the gentleman who was the manufacturer who actually was the, the head of this firm. He goes in, and it was one of those classic, I mean, here I am, this naive, squeaky clean thing from the Midwest, and I go in and I meet one of those really old, tough garmentos. This guy named Sidney Blalner, he's dead, so I can talk about him. He said to me, if you were my granddaughter, I'd have you start by cleaning the toilets. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh my God. So it wasn't that easy to start. Anyway, I said, I said, but, you know, I went to college. Um, I don't think I need to start by cleaning the toilets. And, of course, that really set him off. He said, you college kids come in here and you think you know everything. You don't know a damn thing. And why should I teach you? Anyway, for some reason, for someone as shy as I was at that point, I seemed to come up with a response. Finally, after spending about an hour giving me a hard time, he said, well, meet me at this factory tomorrow at 9 o'clock. And, of course, I knew I had the job because he wouldn't ask me to do that. So I go back, I meet the guy, he does hire me, in fact, and I'm back to entering orders. I had been offered a job by another firm, a big manufacturing firm that had been based in St. Louis but had their New York, the design offices were in New York, and I called the president of that company, because when you're young, you don't know any better, you think you can do anything. So I called him and I said, are you still interested in me? And he said, well, yes. And I said, well, I don't. I think that I, I'm interested in coming to talk to you because I, and so I left that day and never went back to that place. <laughs> I went, so then the other people gave me a job, and then I was designing Mrs. Polyester Sportswear for Sears, because their biggest client was Sears. Again, not exactly my great vision, because <laughs> was my favorite designer, you know, I loved, so, because during the time when I was in school, you know, it was when Lauren Hutton and, and 
Renee Rousseau and Karen Graham, over the, model, the big models of that time. And so, you know, I'd have all these tear sheets of pictures of, you know, an Oscar de la Renta dress and all that. Well, now I'm looking at, you know, pull-on polyester pants and probably in a size 44. I then, um, I do that for about three quarters of a year. And then I go in again and say to this very nice man, not a garmento type at all, but a businessman, and said, you know, you've been so nice to me and everything, but I really would like to interview and I don't want to be interviewing and then have you find out that I'm doing that. And so I'm going to put together a portfolio during the Christmas holidays and I would like to, fine. I go up and do that and I go to a firm called Jerry Silverman. Jerry Silverman was kind of this respectable old ladies firm, but it was back on 7th Avenue. It was better quality and the designer of that was a man named Shannon Rogers. They offer me a job and I spend the weekend thinking about it and I turn it down. And the head of production, who was the part owner of the company, said, well, where do you want to work? And I said, I want to work for Oscar de la Renta. And I had no business making these assumptions that, you know, Oscar de la Renta wanted me. I just wanted him. He said, well, I don't know Oscar, but I know his business partner, his, this man's counterpart. So he gave me Jerry's name, Jerry Shaw, who was the head of the business. And I met Jerry, and I think he liked me. And so then... A few weeks later, I got a call that Mr. DeLorenzo was going to be back in town and I could come for the interview. I go in for the interview and uh, it's on a Friday and he says, well, uh, call me on, on Monday, which subsequently I discovered he says that to everybody because it doesn't hurt to have the heart to say no, I'm not interested. But <laughs> that way he, he, he's never to be found again, you know. Yeah. So I, you know, I call. At the same time, I was going in for a... Uh, my a meeting to, with an interview with Jeffrey Bean. And I'm in the office. Now, this is way before cell phones and everything. And I kept asking the, the receptionist, which I'm sure made her very happy, if I could borrow her phone to call to see if I could get a hold of Mr. Dalrenta, who told me to call. But, of course, <laughs> he wasn't there. Anyway, finally, fifth call, his business partner gets on the phone, and he says, well, I guess you liked your personality. You're hired. And that's how I got to Oscar Goldman. So it wasn't quite as simple as. Pretty good. That's, that's, that's a good that, story. Be, well, I guess what you take from that is persistence, but. Persistence. And me, I, who, you know, you're saying no to me and I'd run, run like a little rabbit. I mean, you know, this was not, I'm a, I'm a lot older and a lot more brazen than now than I was then. But I guess, you know, I just got stuck in my mind. That's what I wanted. And there you have it. And I was with him for 10 years. I love him. I love everything about him. Mm -hmm. He's a lovely man. And the clothes, it was what probably, I, it sounds so dreary to say it was one of the best periods of my life, but it truly was. It was such a remarkable apprenticeship. We had so much fun. That's not to say it wasn't aggravating and frustrating and all this, and I could go on forever with stories about that. But it was, an, I mean, I was truly, truly fortunate to have such an extraordinary mentor. And so after 10 years, you decided you had enough under that you knew how that you could go forward and be, start your own? Yeah. What happened, as I said before, I become the world's oldest assistant. It was time for me to leave. And I'd gotten enough, you know, enough self-esteem and enough courage to go off and, and, and try and start my own label, which is what I did in 1985. And it... It was women's sportswear? Really? No, I, no, this was, I did a full collection day through evening, but I think people mostly associate me with cocktail and evening clothes because it was the 80s. 
I also, because of who I was married to, I happened to live that life. And so not only did I design for that clientele, I was that clientele. Didn't you, did you do wedding dresses in a line? I didn't do a line of them. People would ask me to do wedding dresses yeah. because, you know, people always right. ask you to do wedding dresses. And I did a few for a couple of friends, you know, their daughters and things. It's not something I want to do. It's too traumatic, you know, between the mother, the mother, the husband, the, you know, the bridesmaids. The, forget it. It's just such a, it's too emotionally wrought for me. Yeah. I feel like I knew somebody in the Midwest, someone in Missouri who had a Caroline Rome wedding dress back in the 80s. And I'm wondering, I can't remember who it is now, but that's what I was asking. I did, I did some, yes. So you go through this, uh, you get out of the fashion business. Was that traumatic for you? or? It was a nightmare. In 1992, my stepson was killed. And, oh, uh, that's awful. Yeah, it was awful. And kind of my life fell apart at that point. And uh, because I was getting ready to switch my manufacturing base to um, France, I wanted to produce more clothes in France because the quality was better. And so I was going to be spending, you know, I'd be every month in France. And I thought, you know, how can I do this when my husband has gone through this horrible, horrible situation? And... Um, and I, I, I probably made a mistake. I should not have made big decisions like that at that moment because basically you should never make big decisions when you're in a devastating situation. But I did, and I decided to shut down my business. I mean, it wasn't that alone. It was just fashion is a horrible grind. Yeah. And I, because yeah. of being married to Henry Kravis, we were so in the limelight and so in the fishbowl, you know, um, so I was always in the public eye and it just got to really be a lot of wear and tear on me emotionally. And so I made the decision to shut it down, which was really painful because I truly, this was my dream. I loved it. I loved all the people who worked for me. I had a great crew and it was one of the hardest things I ever did was to shut down that business. So That's sad. I mean, that's that is, really... Yeah. But it's, you know, it shows it, it, it kind of who, no matter who you are and, and where you are in life, you know, things happen. And yeah. how do you yeah. move forward? I mean, a lot happened. Then I ended up getting divorced. And it was just a very, very difficult time in my life. And so... Well, it also shows how you persevere and you go on and no one even thinks of that time anymore. They think of you as the you know, interior designer or who puts out these gorgeous books and, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's like you recreate yourself. You know, I went off to, uh, I said, I, when people asked me, I said, you know, I really had to get out of New York because it was, I just felt I couldn't stand it any longer. And so I went off to, I'd always had this fantasy about going to Oxford or to Cambridge and studying. And uh, I decided to do it. So I left New York. I took a summer course. I went over and I studied Shakespearean tragedy at Oxford. <laughs> because I thought, well, I am a tragedy. So might as well sit I with the best. <laughs> out, but maybe the bard will help me figure out what in the hell happened. 
I mean, and that just sort of really describes what you seem to, I mean, you take a tragedy and you, you turn it into this very romantic sort of, I mean, you go to Oxford and you study Shakespeare. I mean, that's, it's, I, I love that, that that's how you turn it, you know, what you turn it into and turn it around to be. You know what I've always found, and, and this was true in the economic meltdown in 2008 and when we were all affected by that, whenever I get terribly sad or frightened, my comfort zone is to go back to school. And so it was just, you know, learning is the key to life for me. And, um, you know, my passion is designing, but I, tr- I really, Oscar used to tease me all the time. I would take cooking classes and I take language classes and I take this class. I, I'm, a, I'm a perennial student. So I went off to Oxford, and that really started getting me back on my feet again. So then I decided to go to, I'd always wanted to live in Paris. And so I rented an apartment, and I went off to Paris, and that's when I started working in the flower shop. I worked in a flower shop in Paris. Speaking of romance. (laughs) Yeah. And... Uh, the only thing I wait. The only thing I'm thinking about is I have an only daughter, and I'm just dying because you're saying your parents didn't want you to move, and and then you end up in Paris, you know, and and you know, but my mother thinks you know I'm a, a lunatic. She does, you know, she doesn't. I'm not. It's funny. I don't get scared of many things. I'm kind of one of those plunge in type of people. And so, you know, it never occurs to me that if something's, I mean, I'm not, I don't have any fear of danger, you know, or I don't have that. The only thing I don't, I'm afraid of are mean people. Other than that, I can handle about anything. <laughs> um, so I just went off to Paris and it was great. And I, it helped me rebuild my life. And because of working in that flower shop, I came back to Featherstone because I, I rented this apartment and I always go there in the wintertime um, because not the most wonderful time to go there but in a certain sense it was it was very beautiful and I just I mean I walked the streets of Paris I did everything and again I took cooking classes and I worked in this flower shop at night and I did all of these things that you know kind of feed the soul and and then when I came back to Weatherstone because it was gardening season you know, at the end of April, it comes so late here, the, the, the springtime, you know, I was thinking about my flowers and everything. I thought, you know, no one's done a flower book in a long time. And because I had learned a great deal there and because I'm so passionate about flowers, I did my first book, which was called A Passion for Flowers. And that's what started me down. And I, A, I didn't know a publisher. B, I've never written a book. C, I've never, um, didn't have an agent. And I just put together a book and uh, with a guy I knew whose wife I'd known in the fashion business and she had worked at Vogue magazine and he did, um, he worked at a magazine, I think it was one of the women's magazines and I started, you know, I just laid out the entire book and then found the publisher and the, and I was very fortunate, you know, I took it to two publishers and both of them wanted it, so... That's very fortunate. You definitely have a born under a lucky star. Yeah. I think there are moments when, um, but also the reason is I didn't, you know, if I just taken in the idea, you know, if you're in fashion, you're in the show business because you're showing collections four times a year. And I wasn't going to take in a concept or an idea 
or, you know, a little storyboard or something like that. I was going to take in a book. Yeah. Because, you know, when you design a collection, you don't, you know, sit there and talk to a buyer and say, well, what do you want? Or, you know, this is my idea, but, you know, and have nothing to show them. So I did this book and took it and they wanted it. You were prepared. You're right. You were prepared. And as you said, you really gave it some thought. I have to kind of retract that lucky statement because I think you're right. You, you sat there and you knew what was out there and where there was a need and, um, and you went with something that was a passion of yours. Exactly that. And I just realized all your books are called A Passion For. Well, no, my recent one is just flowers. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, the older one, yeah. Here's what happens. When you have, my book is hugely successful, my first book, because that type of big coffee table book, I sold a lot of them. And so once a publisher or publishers get the idea that something sells and works, then they wanted everything passion. So it wasn't my idea to do a passion for parties. I, don't have, a, I, I have a passion for creating them and doing them. I have no passion for going to them or even going to my own. I'd rather decorate and then go upstairs and eat a baked potato. Because <laughs> I'm tired of it. And, and also I'm a loner, so I'm not... You know, I spend a tremendous amount of time alone. And so, um, you know, there's moments that I can go to a party and have a good time, but it's certainly not a passion. You but, are a loner? Really? Yeah. I, I would never have thought that, that you were a loner. Huh. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess the only child part maybe makes you part, that's part of it. It um, is. I, I know what you're saying. Cause my my daughter's like that. She can entertain herself, you know, and forever. Right. I'm sure. But no, I, I'd say you know I've been up in Connecticut now. I came back. Usually I'm in Colorado at this time of the year, and I came back and I haven't told but one friend that I'm back here because I'm working on all these different projects and I really love this quiet time where I can think. And then this week I'm going into town and I am seeing people and I'm going to go to dinner, but I haven't seen, I've hardly seen a soul in 10 days. Um, when did you start going to, you go to Aspen, right? Right. Um, did you start going in the 80s or? No, my ex-husband and I had a house in Vail, but I didn't want to go to Vail obviously anymore. So I um, kind of looked around, I went to Sun Valley for a um, few years and then with be with guys that didn't ski so kind of dropped it for a while then finally uh i went to aspen and i really really liked it contrary to what i thought it was in the 80s which was very glitzy and all of that and that was just going to be too i'd always stayed away from it for that reason you know i prefer quieter places well growing up in missouri did your did you all ever i grew up in kansas city just to give you a reference so um did we, I no but I was going to say, the big thing in Kansas City is that people have houses in Colorado for ski houses. And so in the 70s, I we used to go to Aspen. But I wondered if, I was going to say, did you ever go when you were growing up from St. Louis to... Um, I, I didn't learn to ski until I was in my 20s. Okay. My first big love was from Liechtenstein, and he took me to, uh, to when we skied at one of his, his family's house in Switzerland. So that was the first time I was on skis. Well, that's not a bad place to start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always have been kind of lucky on skis. 
So that's another whole story. <laughs> if I ever wrote I'd actually make some money, probably. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what we need, just a passion for life. That's what we need, the Caroline Rome passion for life book. The and passions we can all of. read along <laughs> and yeah, kind of be stunned into silence. I probably end up with, you know, some ducks on my feet in the East River. So. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. I mean, every oh. good book needs an arc. So there you go. <laughs> I know, I'm not ready to kick it just yet so listen I would read it I would read all the stuff leading up to that (laughs) let's hope that wouldn't happen but I would definitely read it well it'd certainly be more interesting reading than probably reading about flowers but um I've had a I've had an interesting life I will say that (laughs) didn't you survive a terrible fire at one of your houses Yes, Weatherstone burned down in 1999, Oh, which was really yes. upsetting to me, given me the fact that my ex-husband and I had seven different houses, well, two apartments, and I mean, two houses in Southampton, a house in the DR, Weatherstone, a house in Vail, a ranch in western Colorado, northwestern Colorado, I mean, all this stuff. Anyway, the only house I loved was Weatherstone's, the only one I wanted. I didn't want all those houses, he did. So to have it burned down, it just was crushing. What's the history behind that house? The house actually has a very, by American standards, a, a very uh, interesting history because the house was actually uh, started in 1765. So it's pre-revolutionary, but it's a Georgian house, which was unusual at that time in this part of the world to have such a large stone house. Now, I mean, you'd find, be more likely to find that in the South, in Virginia, you know, Carolinas, rather than uh, uh, up here. Anyway, I, um, the house was owned by a man who had had, you know, he was from an affluent family, and he went off to Edinburgh to study to become a doctor, and he obviously did the grand tour, and because we know that the architect and the stonemasons were Italian, and the fact that the house is Georgian on the outside. It wasn't a classic colonial house. And um, then he helped raise the, uh, the regiment from Connecticut as a colony to fight in the Revolutionary War. And after that, he didn't have money to complete the house, so he sold it to his nephew, who subsequently became a first governor, one of the first governors in Connecticut. I don't remember if it was first or second. So the governor actually lived here. And during the Revolutionary War, in the part of the house, so the, so the history goes, is that Noah Webster lived on the third floor. He, taught, he didn't live there. He taught school on the third floor because the third floor of this house was used for public meetings, even though we're not in Hartford. And so this is before, you know, they've established Hartford as the, as, as the, the capital. And he taught school up there on the third floor during the time he was writing the Great American Spelling Book, which is the prelude to the dictionary. Wow, so that's great. The first uh, medical co- uh, congress was held here because this uh, the, the gentleman who studied medicine actually went to Yale. And there, I, I have a copy of a letter right up in the, the Historical Society talking about a Thanksgiving during the Revolutionary War where the young man had ridden back from New Haven, Yale, to come home for Thanksgiving. And they talk about the fact that they don't have any meat because all the meat had to go for General Washington's troops. And so, I mean, it's, you know, so there's little bits and pieces of, of interesting history. 
house. But how did the stone house burn? It, it was gutted. I mean, the stone wall stood because there were basically three feet wide. And the wow. point... So the walls were very, very, very thick, but it was gutted because what happened, of course, over the years is when they put in the lays, you know, to do the plaster for the walls, of course, there's nothing in between. So you had the stone, you had the wooden lathes, and then the plaster was put over. So you had that space in between, which basically made a chimney. So the fire oh. was burning inside the walls before we even realized it. Oh. So you, now you have fire stops. You know, you have fire. Uh, walls, yeah. But, but then you didn't, not back in 1765. So the house, basically, when the house, when the fire, when I, I stood here and watched it burn, because I was in New York City, raced up here, and you stood down in the basement and you looked up at the sky. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so sad. Oh, that's it was, it was really, really sad. But, you know, I kind of boarded, we boarded up the, the stone part, put plywood over everything, and then, oh, about springtime came, because it was happening in January, spring came, and I said, well, maybe, and I didn't even want to face the house, so, because um, I lost all the contents with the exception of one bed. The kitchen and didn't burn. I said, good, I'm left with the pots and pans. That's charming. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but fortunately, that meant my dishes, too. I decided, you know, that basically... You know, I had to look at this as an opportunity to create a house. While the house was very pretty on the inside, it was still a very classic house. And I wanted to do, I, to take basically six spaces, meaning a hallway and five rooms to make one large grand room. And that's what I did because I wanted to have a double height ceiling. And I think when I got the idea to do that, then I said, okay, now it's a project and I'm not going to be sad about it. And I plunged into that project. But how long did you spend found rebuilding? Um, I opened the house up in May, started looking for an architect, talked to two or three. They didn't share the same vision I did. And then finally, I ran across an article about Alan Greenberg, who's the great classicist. You know, he yeah. helped restore. George Schultz brought him in to do the treaty room, you know, where all the American treaties are held, and redecorate the Secretary of State's uh, offices. Yeah. Uh, when he was uh, when Schultz was Secretary of State, and so he's a great classicist. And I just read an article about him, and I thought this is the guy for me. And I told him basically over the telephone what I wanted. He said, "Well, I'd like to come and see the burned-out shell." And I said, "That's great, except that I'm getting ready to go to Africa on a horse on a, a safari by horseback. And so, could you come up while I'm away?" And I told him, basically, I wanted this double-height ceiling with a gallery running on three sides with bookshelves and, you know, kind of blah, blah, blah. I came back, and he had, the, I guess, three weeks later, and, and he had the first drawings, and he got it in an, in an instant. I said I wanted the whole classical order expressed, you know, so from top to finish. So, I mean, you know, the Doric, the Ionic, and the, and the, and the, and the Corinthian. You know, I, I said I want this house to be architecturally detailed enough that I don't have to have a piece of furniture in it. Hmm. And he got that, and and off we went. Wow. wow. Sounds beautiful, though. I know. Now, did it's the, in my book, A Passion book? for it, 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 in, in the Interiors book, A Passion for Interiors. It was supposed to be A okay. Passion for 
design, but Barbara Streisand took that label, even though I'd come up with it first, but she's Barbara Streisand. And so the publishers say, no, she gets the title. Uh, so it's in my, it was the book before Flowers that was out in 2010. Because the one with the red living room and... The, the, the red bedroom, yeah. Oh, that's a bedroom. Gorgeous. I love all your, I love all your apartments over the years. I, I love, you have, such, you have such a classical way of decorating. I, I love that. Thank you. I am a classicist, that's for sure. Yes, I mean, the mirrors and the busts and the moldings, everything is just so elegant and beautiful. Now, Caroline, did the um, fire affect the gardens or the rebuilding, or how was that? Uh... Yeah, around the house it did, because, of course, then around the whole house, because we had to bring in a steel steel beams to support, because while the walls stood, they couldn't, they were afraid, the engineers were afraid it wouldn't support a roof again. Because, you know, we're talking about temperatures that were beyond uh, 1,700 degrees. And I know that only because it was interesting because steel starts to bend at 1,700 degrees. And I, there was, had been at one point, been a reinforced beam down in the, the uh, steel beam. And uh, that did bend. Strangely enough, though, the old, old chestnut beams that were put in when the house was built did not burn. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. So, yes, I, 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 as a result, staging all of that, you can imagine all the equipment and the cranes and all that around the house, so that meant that all the earth was so compacted and it was a mess, so I had to totally redo the gardens around the house. And so, yeah. I was wondering who you had design, who designed your gardens. Did you? Uh, it depends on which one. The one in front of the house, uh, I did. And the one on the side, I basically did the layout, and then I, I did hire a landscape architect because of the drainage situation. That was a, a, a big factor. But we actually implemented and planted the things ourselves here at the, on the property. So it was fun, you know, doing, I love the, the gardens around the house, although I've let the boxes get a little too big, but anyway, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I redid those. And those pictures you see a bit in Flowers. I'm actually working on a, an actual garden book, which is going to be more informative and about the, the gardens per se, which includes vegetables and more structure and hardscape and those kind of things, um, as opposed to the flower book. And um, I'm going to be talking a lot about that in that book. Great. So tell us about the, your new book, the one that's just out called Flowers. It's your, and it's your own photography. What happened is that, you know, in the past I've always had a wonderful photographer who turned into a dear friend do the photography on the, on the books. And um, this time, because it was all really about the flowers, I thought, you know, I can't have, because Sylvie, my photographer, lives in Paris. And we've been friends ever since my first book, and I'm the godmother to her child and everything. And so, but I can't, you know, have her, obviously, she has a career and a life, and she can't come and stay with me all that time. And you could be sure that probably what would happen, then, you know, if I said, come over for two weeks and let's photograph, that it would rain or do something like that. So I decided that, and I've always been interested in photography, um, and I learned a great deal from her. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to have to do this on my own. And so I did, because, you know, it's, you can't, 
when a flower is ripe, it's ripe, you know, and yeah. two days later, it can't be ripe, you know. Uh, so I just really got into photography. And the book Did is... Did you take classes? I took, so, I took a couple of classes, but more, not so much in photography as in things like Lightroom, because that's a database for all the, to, to uh, organize, because, you know, I take a zillion pictures. And um, so I took classes in that. In Photoshop, although, you know, Photoshop isn't something I used in this, in, on this book, because I'm not interested in creating art. I just want to take a good photograph. And Photoshop is really for people who want to change and enhance and, you know, kind of like taking the head off that and putting on a different body. And I wasn't interested in doing that. I want people to see the flowers as I see them. And so mine was really a recording. So uh, my biggest, um, and I, I, I did take some, uh, a couple of little photography classes. But I, I really wanted to, and, you know, I've always loved the photographs of Irving Penn, and I don't know if you remember, but he did this book called Metamorphosis. And, of course, all my books burned when my house burned down. So I hadn't seen that book, and I, in my mind's eye, I remembered the book a certain way. It came out in 1981. And so I went online, and I got an old, an out-of-print copy of it. And it turned out that's what, not what the book was about at all. Either really these close-ups of flowers, and he showed the flower, you know, just as it started to fade, and then he showed it all the way to the death. So basically, the metamorphosis was from life to death, and I wanted to show them when they're at their best. And so, I think the concept of the photography. I mean, the point of view of the photography was similar to that, but showing them at a different state. Because my whole objective was to, basically, I love flowers so much that I can't stand when they die. And so this was a way of kind of keeping them with me. I know what you're saying. It's, it's, it's really weird because you, it's like you look at them, but you don't want to enjoy them too much because you know they're not going to last. I, I can't explain that that feeling, but I know what you're saying exactly. And particularly then on top of it, when you grow them. I mean, you know, you grow them, you go through all of the, the aches and pains of the back and the, and the, the heartache if, if, the, if you get a, a frost and it kills everything or the deer come and eat and everything. So, I mean, it's, you, you invest a lot of yourself when you garden. And, and so, and the point of this book was not only to share with the flowers, I think, if they're beautiful, but to show them in situ in the garden, but also to show how I use them in the house. And uh -huh. so it's taking the flowers from the garden into the house. And that was the objective with this book. The tulips are just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Thank you. They're my favorite. I love them. They're just, I mean, they're black. They're like black almost, yeah. some of them. I, I love every one of them. I say, everyone always says, what's your favorite flower? I said, I can't tell you that because I love so many of them, you know. It's, That's a pretty garden with the tulips. There's a picture on page 64. I don't and, have them. Well, they're, they're with the boxwoods, like in a partier kind of garden. And Oh, right. That's behind the house. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Oh, my God. Oh. Setting. And you have the book so divided. So you just go outside every morning and you pick flowers for your house? Is that what you First do? First thing I do every single day is get up, pour a cup of coffee, 
take the dogs out and walk through the gardens. The minute spring looks like it might appear up here, which it's very late. Well, the, I don't remember which one of you lives in Boston, but you know what I mean. Yes, I do. It's like May, the end of May. <laughs> yeah. And I used to, and I remember it being um, like Mother's Day, and there was frost on the ground. Yes. Oh, yeah. We got snow in May here, so. So you just think spring is never going to come, and then when you start seeing that first little thing, so every day I'm out there peeking around desperate for, you know, uh, and they always come back, and it's astounding to me. Yeah, so you, you don't have to replant each year. Everything just grows back, right? No, no, no. I, I plant, replanted this year. For instance, I was just on the phone with Bunny Williams because she'd asked me to do trade secrets this year because I haven't done it in a few years. And I specifically replanted a whole section and revamped a part of my cutting garden uh, with masses of all these, these tulips. And, uh, and I've also redone my old greenhouse to kind of, you know, spruce it up a bit. And because someone had asked me to, to do that, and I called her today, I said, Bunny, I thought you wanted me to be on trade secrets, and I'm not on the list. And anyway, she said, of course we want you. I said, well, I guess Pete did, because a mutual friend of ours asked if he called if I'd do it. And I said, I'm happy to do it. So anyway, I did plant, actually, actually specifically, and replant. Those tulips are pulled every year. Wow. How many people do you, you have helping you? Bulbs? You have to pull the bulbs. They wouldn't last. I don't know. In part of the world, they wouldn't last over winter. Uh, no. What happens is that there are some, quote, unquote, perennial tulips, and so they will come back. And in certain areas, I mean, for instance, I have this Portuguese couple that work for me, and they go home to Portugal, and they take some of my bulbs with them, and they replant them, and, of course, they come back. Here, if, to get the kind of mast effect that I want, particularly under my Sargentina crabs and everything, I, they wouldn't come back as richly as they're planted the first time. They start getting spotty. And so, um, and they do the same, you know, on Park Avenue, for example. You know, when they have all the tulips mm -hmm. in it, those are pulled every year. I did try and save the, um, the onions, the bulbs, but it's actually more work to save them and dry them than it is to buy new ones and plant them again. And so, yes, I have the expense of replanting them, but I don't have the labor expense of taking care of them because they have to dry properly and at certain temperatures and everything. And that is labor intensive. Right. And so that's, that's why I pull them and Redo them every year. Well, gardening in My New England is... are the ruffles, the ruffles, the, I guess, the, I call them French tulips, but I'm not sure what they really are called, where you the mean, edges are ruffled. Yeah, those are parrot tulips, like parrot the one on the cover of the book. Right. Those are parrot tulips. God, these are so gorgeous. They're my favorites. I love parrot tulips. Parrots and Rembrandts are my two favorites. Why do I call them French tulips, I wonder? You hear French tulips in the flower trade, in the commercial fl cut flower trade, because they're coming from France and they have these very, very long stems. And so oh. they got the same, for some reason, of French tulips. Basically, they're coming from Holland, but, you know, there's not a variety of tulip or type of tulip that is a French tulip in the gardening world. You have hot yeah. dark ones, you have parrots, you have peony, you have species tulips, you have, um, um, you know, whole varieties of groups, but 
a French tulip is not actually a, a tulip variety. And you get those very long stem ones that are not in season, that they kind of, you can get them in the forest now, for example, and they're very expensive. Yeah. That's what we call French tulips. Well, answer me this. Do you like tulips when they start drooping over, or do you like them tall in a big in the sky? It depends. I love when they, well, first of all, you know that when they start drooping over, there's a couple of things you can get them to stop doing that. And for the most part, those tulips will be standing straight because they take water up through their stems. And the reason they're drooping is because there's not enough water in the stems. And I'm not talking about drooping as in the petals drooping. There's, you know, this is the botany of, of, of the stem. The water goes up the stem and that straightens the tulips. So tulips grow in the water. Mm -hmm. Do you put a penny? Have you ever done that trick? Is that work? I don't, but I mean, that's, we grew up with that. Right. Well, what do you do to make your steps straight? If you want them, if, if, if they're droopy when you get them, what you do is you need to, A, recut the stems. B, there's this one thing that I learned in France. They take like a little knife and just below the base of the, the, of the, the flower head, they cut a little air slit in it. And they say that that releases the air because what, why those tulips are droopy is they have air in them, which is inhibiting the ability of the water to go up the stem. Now, I've done that. It works. But I also take them and if I've got, you know, I've, let's say I've gone to the flower market in the wintertime and you come back and the, you open up the thing of tulips and they all go like that. Then what I, did you get that sound effect? Yes. <laughs> you knew what I meant. Anyway. I take them, I'll put them in water, and then I will loosely take either some tinfoil or some, um, uh, some newspaper or something, and I loosely wrap them so they have a support system. So then, after you've clipped them and they take water up the necks, then you take that away and stand them straight. I'll have to try that. Now, when you replant your garden, um, do you take the opportunity to change the the species and colors around around the property, or do you pretty much stick to the same planting plan? Uh, I change it all the time because, of course, I'm always seeing new varieties and everything. This year, I've gone back to around the house. I decided one year I planted, you know, all this. In fact, it's in the book. These different shades of pink, and I basically decided I don't like pink around the house. I like something a little bit more severe. So all of the, so I'm going to be doing, those are all going to be Maureen, and, which is a big white tulip, and Queen of the Night, which is one of the black tulips, a, a single black tulip. And that'll be pretty. Oh. Right. And I've done it, but I, but I went back to it. Oh, okay. So I change all the time. I promised the people who work for me, because I have, you know, I have a gardener and I have, Basically, I have five people who work on the property, and I need another six. But I'm, and I'm I'm number six. I um, promised them this year I would not move a garden because <laughs> I'm the type that say I want to move that garden, or we're ripping out the whole thing and start you know. And this year I promised. Well, that's also because I'm working on Charleston, and that's my next big gardening endeavor. So. Caroline, I'm looking at your blog. This white dining room. Which house is that in? White dining room. Where you're having the soup on your oh, blog. That's, that's just, I, hey, that's at Weatherstone. Okay. That's, I, don't, I don't have a dining room. 
that's just in a little uh, little um, area that I put a table in because you know what happened was that when I had this house I had this big dining room well you know I was lived alone I have no children and so you end up walking through this dead empty space to get every place and I said why do I want it makes me feel a I'm very very lazy because I don't invite people over or and you know because you had to have 10 or 12 people in the dining room to make it cozy B you know it makes me feel like I'm highly unpopular because you know I've got this empty house I said I don't want a dining room you know until the 19th century the the concept of a dining room didn't exist and so it's a very 19th century deal and so um, I decided to have no dining room. So I have little tables that I use. And by the way, the room that I do use that was the dining room, which I have a sofa in, and I call it the morning room, and it's where uh, I, I, it's, it's a library. When I want to do a big party, if I do want to do something large, I've done five tables of 10 in there, and I can have 50 people in it. And I just take all the furniture out. Hmm. So I can have, but I don't have to walk through that empty unused space. I think diamonds, unless you entertain a lot, are a total waste of space. Yeah, they are. Most people, you know, are in their kitchens or in the, you know, the family slash kitchen area. If I'm by myself, I'm either going to be by the fire reading a book, so I'll be on a tray, or I'll be watching, you know, one of my favorite, you know, Downton Abbey (laughs) on a TV. Well, thank you again. It was really, a, it really was a pleasure speaking with you. Yes, and definitely. I would love to, I, I want you to write that book. I don't really don't want you getting <laughs> cement boots and <laughs> the Hudson, but I really want to, I would I, love I, to hear all your adventures. But, you know, I, I thought about it. I thought, you know, not to necessarily publish it now or maybe never but before I forget it because I've forgotten so much as it is so I thought hmm, maybe I should start writing some of this stuff down well thank you so much yes, thank you. this has been the skirted roundtable with Megan Arquette from Beach Bungalow 8 Joni Webb from Code to Texas and I'm Linda Merrill from Surroundings You can visit us online at www.skirtedroundtable.blogspot.com or download our podcast from iTunes, search for the Skirted Roundtable. Thanks so much, and we'll be back soon.